The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. As I mentioned at the introduction tonight, I wanted to teach about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Very important truth that God's Word itself is our truth. And not only truth about things that don't save us, but above all, the truth that does save us, the love of God in Christ. It's so good that you're here tonight, and the one thing I hope that you would take away from this service tonight is the realization that this one hour that we spend together deeply connecting to God through His Word is the most vital hour, the most life-giving hour of your life. And when you look back on your life and all the hours that you've spent hearing the Word of God and meditating upon it, uh, that has what, is what has given you your life and will give you your future and your eternal life in Christ. So the passage I'm going to get to in a little bit from 2 Timothy, but again as a bit of a reminder, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is prof profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's no surprise that the Word of God would be attacked on all sides. The Bible tells us that God created the entire universe by the Word of God. We read about that in Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and everything came into existence. When sin came into the world, God's Word tells us that Jesus, His Son, was sent. John the Apostle calls Him the Word made flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one who preserves that word and brings it to us and opens our heart to believe it. So this is the very key to everything, and so this is where forces of evil will always lay their attacks. So first of all, let's look at the biblical attack on God's word, or at least the attacks that the Bible itself tells us a lot about. The first occurs very early after the creation, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, when the devil comes and tempts Adam and Eve, beginning by encouraging them to doubt God's word. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And then he goes on to plaster everything over that God said with his own lies, saying that you will not surely die, but you will actually be 
like God. A direct and blatant lie against the very word of God. And of course, it only gets worse. The Old Testament is basically the story of God building up Israel because it's through Israel that he's going to send his son. And it is through Israel that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, will be able to find salvation. So the Old Testament describes the building up of Israel and then the tearing down of Israel. Teared down, torn down because of false prophets and evil kings always working together against God's word. So you see that all over the place in the lives and in the writings of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They all struggle. Go into the minor prophets, Amos, Micah, and so on. They all struggled with people who resisted constantly the word of God. Carries right on over into the New Testament as well. Jesus' ministry begins without a whole lot of opposition, but pretty quickly, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, all the religious powers of the day in Israel come together against him, plot against him, and again, ultimately crucify him. And not only that, but will put to death his disciples and, for example, order Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus specifically, to which Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. And then we come to Paul, and Paul is writing to Timothy. This is probably one of his last writings. Paul is very close to death. He knows that the opposition that has been dogging him all the way in his entire ministry. Uh, if you read the life of Paul, you see how he gets thrown into jail, driven out of town, uh, put on trial here and there and everywhere. He was on trial in different places in uh, the Greco-Roman world. And now he's writing to Timothy and to all future pastors and to all of us. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. All scripture is breathed out by God. And then he goes on to say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Well, because of this ongoing opposition that has always been happening and will continue to happen, as Paul says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander after myths. These are the attacks against the Word of God that are thoroughly recorded in the Bible from cover to cover. Now let's also look at how those attacks have continued throughout history. And I've given you a little outline if you'd like to follow along in, my, in the bulletin today. And under this section, I would point to three ways that the world has been attacking God's Word. One is the philosophical way. This especially came to kind of a climax in the Middle Ages amongst what are called, known as the scholastic theologians who were really more philosophers than they were theologians. And it wasn't that they destroyed the Word of God. In fact, in many ways, they upheld the Word of God. Um, they, they believed in much of it. But 
because of their love for philosophy and morality, the gospel was set off to the side. And in fact, in some cases, almost completely excluded. And this is what the Reformation addressed. And it was this bringing back of the gospel as the priority that it always should have been. But that's a major attack on the word of God, an attack that still continues. That was an attack that happened within the church itself. And that's an attack that still happens within the church itself. When Christians set the gospel aside in favor of the law and want to focus on that and think that's going to save them. A second attack against the word that we see in history came together, especially in the Enlightenment and right after the Enlightenment. This was a time when science was advancing, knowledge was advancing, and so there were many who were beginning to see the Bible as nonsense, fairy tale, things that couldn't be verified. For example, we see it in the Cosmos series that was hosted by the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who says that basically the more educated you are, the less religious or the less you will believe. He sort of gives people the opportunity to believe if they want to, but as one man told me in my office a long time ago, he was also a man of science, he told me, Pastor, you know, the, the truths of the Bible are not like 2 plus 2 equals 4. And in his mind, they were less. They were not as sure. But I know, in my mind, the reality is they are, in fact, more real than 2 plus 2 equals 4. The Bible's full of mysteries, but just because something is mysterious does not mean it's true. And if anybody should know that, it should be a scientist who discovers the root of mysteries day after day after day. But they should recognize that those discoveries are all ultimately leading them to God. But perhaps the one that is happening now the most, not just the philosophical, that still continues, not just the scientific, but the third one I would point to is what I'll call the semantic attack on the Word of God. Semantic is the study of meaning of things. And so this is the idea. Now, again, these people would not tell you to get rid of your Bibles or anything like that. In some ways, they might even uh, believe the, the Bible's a great book. You know, people say this all the time. Really good book. Wouldn't take anything away from it. And so on and so forth. But the problem is, is what they add to it. Like uh, Governor of California, Gavin Newsom, recently advertising that his state is a state for abortions. And then in his advertisement, quoting the Bible, that this is loving your neighbor as yourself. That's an example of what we would call twisting the scriptures, turning the scriptures inside out, taking the obvious meaning of the scriptures and completely loading it with your own meaning and what you want it to mean. Peter addressed this in his second letter. He said that there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand, that ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction. This is the problem of the semantic attack against God's Word. Often these people are very ignorant of the Scriptures, and they're very unstable themselves. And yet they take the Word of God and try to teach you and me what it really means. That's the semantic attack against God's Word. Well, enough of the negatives, enough of the problems. Let's turn to the positives. 
to the blessings. And I'd like to begin with the historical affirmations of the truth of God's Word. One is everywhere around us. One that we see before our eyes every day, and that is the creation of the world itself. The handiwork of God, as David calls it in Psalm 19. Constantly attesting to the design of creation. Of course, I could go on for weeks. In fact, the entire study of science is all about this very thing. And it should cause us to give glory to God not to discount him or to discount his word in any way. But I will give you one little example, a beautiful little example, and it's something called the golden ratio. Maybe some of you have heard about it. You might remember hearing about this thing called the Fibonacci sequence, maybe in high school or in college, but it's a sequence of numbers that we get when we add numbers and then take the sum and add it to the next number and, and so on. But the short of it is, if you take any two numbers in this Fibonacci sequence and you divide the lower number by the higher number, you always come up with 1.618. We can always remember that because we live in the 618 area code. This is the golden ratio, and we see it all over the place in nature. We see the golden ratio in what's known as the golden rectangle. This is a rectangle that has the golden ratio in its length and height. This is the ratio that we see in the human face or especially in spirals like the shell of the shellfish, the Nautilus. Every chamber and the size of each of those beautiful chambers as it spirals around, spirals around all follow the golden ratio. Or something as beautiful and simple as you might find in your backyard, the fiddlehead fern. When at the very top, it curls into a spiral, and that spiral obeys the golden ratio. Or when you look up at the stars at night and you see a galaxy and the spiral galaxy, again, following the rule of the golden ratio. It cannot be an accident at all. Well, Genesis goes on to describe another historical affirmation of the truth of God's Word, and that's the worldwide flood described in chapters 6 through 8. No one can deny this either. It is obvious the world has been flooded. There are marine fossils in the Grand Canyon, which is a mile above sea level, and even in the Himalayas. There are massive fossil graveyards that show us animals that all died at once at the same time. All their bones turned into fossils at the same time. There's no way to explain that other than a massive flood. There are tremendous outpourings of sediment, sediment that we see, for example, in the Grand Canyon that stretches all the way over to England and other places like that. It's amazing. It's a testimony to the Bible. The last one in this section, historical affirmations of the truth of God's Word, is what I call the mortar of historical details in the Bible. Some time ago, I saw that the Reader's Digest had written a Reader's Digest version of the Bible. I think what they were trying to do was to sort of cherry-pick all the sweet passages of God's Word that we love, you know, Psalm 23, and uh, maybe some great stories of faith that we read about in the Bible. But, of course, what do they want to leave out? 
the really boring parts, you know, those genealogies and, and endless historical details and descriptions. And yet now we know that those things, those are the mortar that hold the bricks of the sweet passages together. Those details, well, let me just give you a few examples. The Bible describes roads, rivers, mountains, cities, villages, rulers, wars, money, taxes, decrees, documents, tools, buildings, chariots, weapons, boats, weather, clothing, food. I could go on and on and on. No other book in the world that claims to be the Word of God dares to do something like that. But that's exactly what the Bible does. And all of those things can be checked out. And they are checked out often. And they are often things that attest to the historical veracity and truth of God's Word. Not far from here, you can drive in your car up to Chicago, to the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. And as you tour through and see a lot of amazing things in there, one thing you'll see is a clay prism, a column uh, that is written in the cuneiform language. It is Sennacherib, King Sennacherib's annals. King Sennacherib was a, a Syrian king. He's talked about in the Bible. And he waged war against Judah and Jerusalem, particularly King Hezekiah. And it's all mentioned on that external source agreeing exactly with God's Word. Many examples like that. Again, we could go on and on with that. History affirms the truth of God's Word. But lastly, the spiritual affirmation of God's Word. Well, one of the first would be this, that the Bible says negatively that this world is under the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. History, again, affirms the very same thing. Civilization after civilizations have come and gone. And yet no one has solved the problem of evil in this world. It continues, not only does it continue, but it grows worse and worse, just as Jesus promised. Another example of spiritual affirmation and the truth of God's word would be in all of the prophecies and the way that they were fulfilled. The Bible's filled with prophecies. And one after another after another are beautifully fulfilled. This is one of the unique ways that God can take words and teach us things that we cannot see but know that they are absolutely truthful. We know, for example, that in particular, the Messiah, Jesus, would be born of a woman, born of Abraham, born of David, born in the little, nobody had heard of this village, Bethlehem. According to Isaiah 53, who would suffer, who would die, who would rise. Prophecies fulfilled. The testimony of the truth of God's word. And perhaps the best and most important one, and I'm sure the one most important and near and dear to each of us, is that the Bible teaches us the love of God is the key to life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Paul picks up the same thought in Romans when he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor ruler, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> the Bible is truthful, 
And in many ways, we ourselves also struggle with it. The world struggles against it, tries to subdue it, twist it, distort it, subvert it, suppress it. We, as Christians, struggle with it. We struggle with it because it does call out our sin and it calls us to repentance. But it also promises us forgiveness and and absolution. And I want to leave you with this last thought tonight. It is better to struggle with the truth of God's Word and be saved than to happily slide, according to the deceits of the devil, into hell itself. The widow in the parable struggled, and Jesus pointed to her as an example for us that we should struggle with God in our prayers, knowing that He has promised to answer, that He has promised to bless us, that He has promised to save us. It is all, ultimately, the truth of God's Word, as Paul said to Timothy and to all pastors and to you, that is breathed by God, that is profitable for us and for our salvation. Amen.